Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you the man who gave John Wick some of the coolest dialogue we've heard since classic Schwarzenegger, screenwriter Derek Kolstad. We called him Baba Yaga. I once saw him kill three men in a bar with a bouncer. I'm retired. Not if you're drinking here, you're not. They know you're coming. Of course. But it won't matter. There's more to Derek Kolstad's story than snappy dialogue. In fact, Mr. Kolstad first discovered his deep love of cinema thanks to one very specific trait, his height. Like all of you guys, I mean, I grew up loving movies and grew up in a Christian household and I was a shitty liar, still am. And I was this height at the age of 12 and so I never got carded going into R-rated movies and I excitedly came home and my mom said, what did you see? And I was like, Robocop. And you know, that was a horrifying movie at the time. And I excitedly told her the entire plot of the movie and it left and she looked at my dad and said, we should probably encourage him in this. So thanks, mom and dad. Um, Madison, Wisconsin is a world away from LA, especially pre-internet. And uh, even though I started writing screenplays at the age of 13, before Microsoft Word, we had WordPerfect. And I programmed a template for a screenplay uh, and just started writing it for myself. So I'd write two, three, four, five screenplays a year and put them on the shelf or save them and that file would get corrupted and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't know how to do this. So I watched movies. I loved movies. Mr. Colstead did more than just watch movies. He wrote a lot of them too. So when he got his shot later in life, he was ready. Honestly, it came down to... You know, we, we always talk about the 10,000-hour rule. You guys have heard that a thousand times, I'm sure. And I think for me, it's the 10,000-page rule. But you get to a point where you begin to hear voices in your head from various editors and readers in your life without hearing them. And also you realize that more often than not in the movies that I love and the movies I want to write, the city's a character. The building's a character. So spend a line or two. You love your hero. You love your hero. You love your hero. And you want to stay with your hero. And then you realize that when you deviate from the hero, what the people are talking about and what they're trying to say and do affects your hero. I mean, that's, that's genre to me. That's what I love about it. But when you think of the efficiency of it, our favorite scenes in movies don't have anything to do with the plot. You know, I always think of Ronin's one of my favorite movies. I bring it up all the time. And if you want to write, watch that. Watch that weekly until you sell something. Which one? Uh, Frankenheimer's Ronin. Because there's so many just lines in there, throwaway lines, you realize, oh, that's character, you know? But I think the other thing, though, too, is don't be afraid to write out the dialogue, write out the narrative, write out the conversation, read it, and render it out three pages into a look, a nod. We were talking in the green room about, you know, the old westerns, and you can, you can say what you will about some of them. Uh, you can have a monologue, or you can have a certain guy tip his hat, and the tip of the hat speaks more. So... In regards to efficiency, the other thing, too, is go way back, watch Harold Lloyd, watch Buster Keaton, watch the old silent movies, and just see how they tell a story without any kind of dialogue. And that was a godsend to me. 
As many people in the entertainment industry can attest, sometimes love just ain't enough. Derek Holstad even started a different career, but he couldn't turn his back on his true passion. At the age of 26, I was a consultant in Chicago. I worked for Dale Carnegie, and I taught sales managers how to build and staff their sales teams. Exciting. <laughs> and my little brother called, and he asked me how he was doing, I just started crying. And I'm not an emotional guy. And I realized I had to fail at this. And so it was about 2000. I drove out to L.A. in a Gulf TDI that had been shipped over from Germany with a governor's switch. It was a diesel little thing. Half my back seat was taken up by a 19-inch CRT monitor. And people just glaze over at the tech. But anyway, I knew one guy who worked at Azusa Pacific University that I went to kindergarten with. And I crashed on his couch out in San Dimas. That's where I started. And this was before... I mean, it was with email and stuff, but I was spending 200 and 300 bucks a week printing out scripts, putting in the brads, buying straight-edge razors to actually run along the sides so that when people opened up, it just felt good, you know? And uh, I got noticed right away because I wrote a screenplay called The Wayfarer, and it was just a cool title. It was a sci-fi horror, which was a couple of years after Event Horizon, so it was kind of in that, that mix, and it had uh, two black leads. So at the time, everyone, of course, thought that Derek Holstead was a, a black man, and uh, I'm not, but I had a lot of very interesting meetings of walking into uh, Spike Lee's company, and they're like, who are you? <laughs> but it was a great experience, and I got to know a lot of people. And the only problem was is... I had the corporate thick skin. I didn't have the industry thick skin. Like, I came from Midwest corporate where handshake, where's your bond? Hollywood is very different. You hear yes all the time. And then you get to a stage where you want to hear go f*** yourself because you're like, oh, thank God, you know? And so I walked away for a little bit but kept writing and kept watching. And I would still write three to five screenplays a year, put them on a shelf. And I wrote this one called Acolyte. And Sonia, my wife, who... We lovingly refer to her as a script bitch because she's a first line of defense. She is my editor, and she's better at this than me. She makes me a better writer. And uh, she read it, and she's like, you should try it again. I got a manager. I did two direct-to-DVD movies that were an ungodly challenge, and yet you're still kind of you know, proud of them because of what you went through. And I was like, I'm done. You know, I've lived a happy life. I like writing. It makes me happy. And so I was going to walk away. John Wick also claimed he was going to walk away, and we know how that played out. <laughs> Fortunately, one of the producers on Mr. Kolstad's previous films wasn't going to let his talents go to waste. The one producer on that project that I liked, named Mike Callahan, introduced me to Mike Goldberg and Josh Adler, who were managers at the time, and they're currently still my reps, and they saved me. The first one we went out with was Acolyte, got optioned for uh, 1800 bucks. <laughs> which, hey man, you know, that was three months of rent. And then uh, I wrote Scorn, and Scorn is what John Wick became. And I wrote it after watching Faster with Dwayne Johnson and Harry Brown, both of which movies I was just like, I mean, they were okay, you know? And my thing about John Wick is it's an homage to the movies I grew up with and loved. You know, you, you mentioned The Green Room in the 70s, and I always love in even the old Bond movies, they'd refer to a character, and you wouldn't see that character for two or three movies down, but you didn't know who he was at the time. And so when you think that I wrote that initial screenplay in three days, the second draft in two weeks, I sold it in February, and we went into production that November. Yeah, so when you think of overnight success, I know I'm blessed. I worked 
hard to get to the point where I get to work hard. But that's kind of, you know, a little bit of the journey. And the interesting thing is we initially went out with that script with uh, directors. And all the directors that we met with were like, don't get the dog. It's not enough. Let's give him a whole family to slaughter. <laughs> and, you know, instantly our whole thing is it's not the dog, it's the dog. And that's not the point. Like, we've seen that and it made sense to this character. And suddenly on a Friday, 11 o'clock in the morning in Basel, the producer called me and he's like, just got a weird call. Keanu Reeves called to ask to read the script. Are you cool with that? And I'm like, fuck yeah, you know? <laughs> and so they, they couriered it over to Keanu, and I got a call an hour and a half later, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm waiting for your call, you know? <laughs> and he's like, can you go over to his house? I'm like, fuck yeah, you know? <laughs> and so I live in Pasadena. He's right above, I mean, he's in Hollywood A star, you know, super, super land. And, uh, you know, went up. It's just him in this really nice house, but it's not overly ostentation for a guy worth half a billion dollars. Walk down, and usually, as you guys well know, you meet someone famous, and they tend to be smaller. And he's my height, and uh, he's very congenial. And you know, I can't do a Keanu, and he's just like Derek Kolstad, like Keanu Reeves, you know. And the thing that hit me is as I'm walking past his office, I you not, he had 300 scripts on his desk because. He loves what he does. He reads all the time. And I'm not pandering when I say, when you get his notes, they're not just for his character. It's for the story. He loves it. But I just kind of, it kind of hit me that this is the one we're meeting on, you know? And so he and I worked on the screenplay for four, five, six long weekends in a row. And uh, during that time, I got, I got, I tell this story way too much, but I love it. There was a knock on his door, but he's got like one of those little two ways. And he's like, hello. This woman says, hi, my name's Christina. I'm on a road trip from Chicago with my family. We're just really huge fans. Can we ask you some questions? He's like, okay. <laughs> we go out to his driveway. There's a minivan with a family of five from Chicago. Christina is sophomore in high school. And Keanu Reeves walks out. And they're like, holy shit, it worked. And they, they talk for a little while. And they ask some questions. And he was the sweetest thing in the world. And, of course, them being Midwestern, we're like, oh, don't want to bother you. And then we went back and we sat down and I was just like, we've made it, you know, this is pretty cool. But Chad and Dave came about because Chad was Keanu's stunt double on The Matrix. And once you get to know Chad and you watch The Matrix, I love that movie, but now it takes you out of it because you're like, okay, oh, that's Chad. Okay, oh, that's Chad, you know. But they've known each other for years and they've always been, you know, Keanu is a huge tech guy. So he, at any given time, is over with uh, the DIT and the lenses and he loves that kind of stuff. So they just geeked out on that and he was the biggest fan of them and they were the biggest fan of him so that's where it came about it was the perfect marriage of material star and director despite already having credits and attention Derek Kolstad realized he needed to fully embrace his love of film in order to unleash John Wick when I wrote John Wick I was writing a love letter to the movies I loved and I think a lot of times when it clicks for people they dive back into the stream unintimidated by the movies that they wanted to be swimming with, you know? Before that, I was writing smaller movies, I was writing monster movies. I love horror, but horror is a different beast, so is comedy, you know? But I think with John Wick, I suddenly can have people talking like Howard Hawks movies. I can have a guy like Winston over-talking. You stabbed the devil in the back and forced him back into the life that he had just left. You incinerated the priest's temple. 
burned it to the ground. Now he's free of the marker. What do you think he'll do? No one talks like that. You know, it's like a stage play. I can refer and I can build out and I can peel back the onion and I don't need to explain everything. And yet, as the writer, be satisfied with it and want to do more. So John Wick was me just kind of suddenly going, I'm going to stop trying to be who I'm not and just fully f***ing embrace, which is what I love. At first glance, the seedy underworld of the Continental might seem like something out of like a James Bond movie, you know, with high-tech gadgets, but it is unapologetically low-tech. Heck, even the phones are analog. One of the things we've always joked about is if you throw tech in a movie, it's comical 18 months after the fact. And so we love the idea of throwing in like, of course they use 50s era equipment because in this world, it just makes sense. It's reliable. They own the lines. No one can tap them, you know, that kind of thing. No one would think to tap them. And, you know, when you think of the suicide girls and guys and, and the look and feel of the world, a lot of that has to do with all of our love of the warriors, you know, where you have these various gangs, and I'm sure you've all seen the movie. And it was like, how do you bring that in but more grounded, right? And then the other thing, too, is I grew up with Alistair McLean and Dashiell Hammett and Agatha Christie and all those mystery action thriller writers. And then the movies of the 70s you talk about, I bring up Three Days of the Condor all the time because I think one of the greatest characters ever made was Max von Sydow's Joubert in that movie because he's this really calm, kind killer who is also the oracle and is also the chorus in the choir. It's quite restful. It's almost peaceful. No need to believe in either side or any side. There is no cause. There's only yourself. The belief is in your own precision. And so that's where it kind of came about. And you know, when you go down the rabbit hole of seeing an actor they really like and then going into their filmography, you stumble upon movies like The Outfit, where you're like, what is this? You know? And then you track down the writers of those books, and then you, and you track down Spencer, and suddenly you just you keep going closer and closer to what I grew up with, which James Cagney and you know, White Heat and all of those classic gangster movies. In creating John Wick, Derek Colstad wrote a movie that he, as an action fanboy himself, could fully geek out about, provided the directors took the ball and ran with it. I like writing screenplays with pros so that, you know, it's a lot of times it's for the actors. We know full well the action is going to be different by the time it goes to production. But like in the first one, when you have the classic red circle uh, action sequence, there's a scene where, where John shoots a guy's foot, the guy leans forward and he shoots his head. And I'm the guy in the audience going, hee hee because I wrote that, you know? And so I wrote all these action sequences. And then John grabs the guy's head, puts it on the other side, shoots him three times. I was like, ho, 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 I didn't write that, you know? But that's where we could geek out because Chad and Dave, you know, they've got a, what we always call it, the, the back pocket black book of action sequences and kills and, and stunts they've always wanted to do. And they threw everything they could at it. What makes the action scenes all the more impressive is you can tell Keanu is doing a lot of the stunt work himself. In fact, in Derek Kolstad's next film, Nobody, Bob Odenkirk, yes, that Bob Odenkirk from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, is also going full wick and getting in on the action. The thing about Keanu is like, 
you know, and this is the one with Bob Unkirk as well. These guys train their asses off. They're in the best shape of their lives. At the end of the day, when you see them, you wouldn't recognize them just because it's like, if you guys remember being in sports in high school or even now, like your face droops and, you know, you walk alongside some of them, you hear their knees, you hear their, their shoulders, but they're just in heaven. And yet the only way you can get those long takes is if they train and train and train and train. And when Keanu and when Odenkirk train, it's judo, it's jujitsu, it's yes. getting your ass handed to you so that the number of times that they're thrown through a plate glass window and it's them, or the way that you know Keanu describes it is like he walks out, the car hits the stunt double, but it's him that goes rolling to his feet. He's like, that's still like, you know, you go do it, Colston. I'm like, no, you know, I don't own a piece of this, you know. So. Credit must also be given to the maestros of John Wick, David Leach, who co-directed the first one with former backlot guest Chad Stahelski, who went on to direct both sequels. One particularly vivid and violent scene from John Wick 3 features knives being flung around like the bullets from a machine gun. That's all Chad, that scene. And it's, it's my favorite scene in the movie. We had talked about it, and one of the things I loved about it is when they first start throwing the knives, they don't have the gauge right. So they're hitting, you know, clunk, 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 and at the end where it's like, sink, 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 and you're just like, oh, shit. You know, but a lot of times the way I write an action scene is just make sure that the first couple of hits moves. I, I don't use technical terms because everyone will glaze over. But if you take out a knee, if you say the leg folds at an unnatural angle, if you say that they give as good as they get, you'll you'll become up with these phrases and you just kind of feel yourself. The last thing you want to do is read three pages of, of a fight. Just focus on the first couple of hits and those moves. Make sure that the environment is a character. Everyone likes it when a guy seems to be taking a hit. In reality, he's shifting so that the other guy can lose balance and his face on the table. Introduce the table earlier as a character in the scene. And just make sure that it's a dance and have fun. If you yourself get bored with the scene, you're doing it wrong. And what I'll say is then just cut it in half and see if it works. But a lot of times, just play like you're playing in high school, where it's like, and then I flip you over, and then I throw you, and just have fun. You know, if you're not enjoying that aspect, I mean, come on, like most of my rewrite work is dialogue at a certain point, you know, ugh. But when people are like, okay, we need a car chase scene, like, yeah, you know. All this action might have even made Keanu Reeves a little bit bloodthirsty. He's also one of those guys that like, more. Like I remember after the first table read, I think in the first draft there was a 13 kills and then by the time we got to shooting there's 88 or something <laughs> and we had this table read and it's so funny because they hire a voice actor to read the script and he's there's like nine pages of action at a certain point we're all just laughing at the end someone said man that's really really violent and Keanu goes but it could have been so much more <laughs> and he got two and three so you know Keanu Reeves is no stranger to massive franchises but Unlike the CGI fest that was The Matrix, the success of John Wick rests firmly on his athletic shoulders. After 30 plus years in the entertainment industry, this might be his finest work to date. Well, you know, besides Bill and Ted. Excellent! Though Derek Colstead had a much different voice in his head when he first wrote it. I grew up in an age when uh, Beta and VHS was just coming out. And my mom knew I loved movies, so whenever she got groceries, she'd pick one out of the bin. It was 50 cents, because they were all off trademark, you know, at the time. And so I got to know old actors, very young. So when I write with actors in mind, they're long dead. So that, 
that's Paul Newman, dude. You know, that was, that was my Paul Newman in my head. Um, but when we got to casting, the funny thing is there are four or five offers on John Wick, and we took the smallest one because they wanted to make it now, and as a writer who wanted a career, that's what you go for. One of the offers was, you know, they wanted to make a $60, $70 million with Bruce Willis, but the reality with that is you'd make one and be done. And I think when Keanu came up, he wasn't going to break the bank. And we all knew full well that if we made a movie that was critically and financially okay, we had a franchise. But it had to be encapsulated in a, in a good standing. So when Keanu Reeves came up, it was literally like me going, huh, oh, yeah. You know, and honestly, we, we, the only reason he has a beard in that movie is he showed up and he had the beard. And when we were thinking of shaving him, Chad and Dave were like, Nah, let's do the beard. And we got all this sh from all the various online communities. And then when you saw the first trailer, you're like, can you imagine a clean-shaven John Wick? That's just disturbing. <laughs> Even if he didn't have a beard, John Wick would have connected with his audience because we actually cared about him. It's one of the reasons that those Korean thrillers that I, I love so much, like uh, I wrote the remake for uh, Man From Nowhere, which is one of my favorites, is you spend some time with the character. You love the character. You want the hero. You want the hero's journey. You want to follow him. And at the end of your movie, right before credits, you're like, that was worth my time. I'm glad he got there. I want to see more. But also, it's like just the reality of like, I love the hero. And I think a lot of the action movies we see, they focus on the action. When you go back to the movies that I grew up with and you love, like uh, Die Hard's a great example. You watched it as a kid. And you're like, this is a great action movie. And at the end, you hear John McClane scream out his wife's name as he's literally bleeding out. And you realize, oh, this is a love story. You know, it's a man who still loves his wife. Or even like, uh, I get for this, but I'm going to say it. I love the first Kingsman. I think it's a fun movie. But the best scene in that entire movie is when Exley is across from Michael Caine. And he says the line, I'd rather be with Harry. And I get goosebumps every time. Because in that moment you realize it's a father-son movie. And I think that's why a good movie, regardless of genre, is a good movie. is It comes down to character and the relationships and you wanting to be a part of that character's life. John Wick is a character that, like the legend of Baba Yaga, only gets bigger with time and sequels. With the promise of a fourth movie and a TV show focused on the Continental, we are just beginning to see how far the Wickverse will expand. You know, it's funny because, like, with the television show, which, you know, that's Lionsgate's baby, non-writing EP, and the video games and stuff, I do what I can. But I think with John Wick especially, is I created it, I nurtured it, I laid the foundation. But when you come to the various other splinters, I'm encouraging certain things, but I'm also off kind of focusing on building out other franchises and foundations that in a perfect world come the fourth iteration of that, those worlds combined. Because I, I hate the word canon. I don't think anything should be canonical, you know? I know, I, in the Star Wars MCU of it all, but I don't want to see prequels, you know? In fact, the original iteration of John Wick 2 is a surprise prequel. The original script was, the last act was the impossible task, and you realize, oh, shit, he was doing this all to get out. Right? And then we realized we were just being too witty. It just wouldn't work, you know? 
But in regards to that that universe and that kingdom, when you got a like a cornerstone like you know Winston and Lance Reddick is just a joy and Keanu and all that kind of stuff, I'll be a part of that in a certain respect, and I wish it the best, man. Because the other thing too is. You know, I played Han Solo and Chewbacca in the sandbox. I didn't want George Lucas to show up and go, you're doing it wrong, you know? <laughs> so, like, I just want people to play, you know? The expansion of John Wick is all the more impressive when you consider that first one was basically a lavish and bloody indie film. So John Wick 1, we were all in the trenches together. It was an independent. It was financed out of 15 different pools. And yet, on the last day of shooting, once we had wrapped, the movie was in the black. And then they sold it to Lionsgate, and it did what it did. And it was really the, the home video side of things that wanted a second one. Second one was the hardest, most difficult thing I've ever done, and I would never do it again, ever. Part of the reason was, at that point, you were part of a success. And suddenly, the studio was more invested, and they were invested at a time when they needed it. And suddenly, the people, the core group of people that I was dealing with in the notes were backed up by 15, 20 execs and people where it got to the point where like, I don't know who this is, you know? And then the third one was really me recognizing, oh, this is the devil I know, you know? John Wick 2, I crawled in the bottle a bit and I crawled out. It sounds very after-school special. But to be honest, at a certain point, it goes back to why I wrote John Wick in the first place. One of the things that saved me is in the middle of John Wick 2, and this is a weird thing to say, is the trailer for Mad Max Fury Road came out. And every night I would stand in front of my TV with that, it's the best trailer I've ever seen, with that music. And I'd just stand in front of the TV and I felt like that 11-year-old just snuck into an R-rated movie, just going, ah! Oh! And honestly, it was my love of movies that got me into it and my love of movies that got me out of it. But, you know, married well, friends well family well. And I think the other thing too is regardless of who you are and what you want to do, every day I write one new page. No matter, like, I think I have, right now I have 21 projects in various states of play. <laughs> I still spend at least one page a night spec. Or if you've had a terrible day, just f***ing write fade in. It's the greatest feel in the world, you know? That feels like pitch-perfect advice for all you artists out there. We want to thank Derek Holstead for bringing John Wick into the world and continuing to go to new depths with the character. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Tova Leiter. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash newyorkfilmacademy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor. Edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Macor. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.